This is PRN, your as-needed dose of medical knowledge. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. And I'm Chandler Davis. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Adward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. Happy Pride Month, everybody. On this episode, we talk about transgender health with Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld. I want to thank Nick Carroll and Matt Vandergraaff for helping me write the questions for today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure to follow at PRN Med Podcast on Instagram. Uh, well, thanks so much for having me. My name is Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld. I'm an anesthesiologist, and I was the founder of the program for LGBTQI health at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. I'm currently chair of the American Medical Association and I work at the Medical College of Wisconsin, where I'm a senior associate dean and director of the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you because transgender health, LGBTQ plus health in general, is just a topic that we don't really get to talk about in schools. And I'll be honest, and I want to frame this from the beginning for our listeners, is I don't know anything about this topic. I've never had any sort of lessons. I don't know anything in terms of health. And I want this to be an open conversation, so if I ever say anything that's incorrect, I'd love for you to correct me. And I'm going to try my best, and I assume the students listening as well are trying to best, their best to learn. Um, but I'd like well, to start off by – go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. I think that's the right attitude. And, you know, it's uh, it's an area that only sort of in the last 10 years has had some recognition um, as uh, requiring some attention uh, across health professions training. Um, but, you know, it's clear, depending on which population statistics that you read, but, you know, 4 to 8% of uh, people living in America today identify as part of the LGBTQI community. So understanding kind of the unique circumstances, needs, clinical considerations uh, is obviously important for any practitioner, regardless of specialty, field, area, uh, or where you might be, uh, be working. Well, I I think the obvious question is, why did you become an LGBTQ plus advocate? Well, you know, I've had a deep passion for LGBTQ health as uh, a gay man for a long time. Um, I recognized when I was in training that I wasn't learning the kinds of things that I thought I needed to learn to be able to take care of the community. Um, And so when I um, joined uh, the faculty uh, after residency and started thinking about, you know, what kind of contributions I could make, um, it was an obvious place to to start to think about uh, where I could uh, have some influence and try to uh, make things better uh, for uh, for the community and, and, and students or trainees that I was working with. And so I've been engaged in the field for over 15 years, and I've had the incredible pleasure of working to develop educational programming, clinical services, uh, as well as doing uh, policy uh, and, uh, and research in the field. One of the things that a student recently asked me because I was bringing up this topic of not having education was, you know, they, they feel like they want to be advocates and allies in health and they might not personally identify, but how do you manage, you know, being in your head about saying the right things and making sure that you're not being offensive or that you're not being judgmental while also balancing listening to the patient and making sure you're not getting your head and then saying the wrong thing because you're trying to say the right thing. Yeah, I, I think it starts with just recognizing that um, no one is perfect and no patient expects you to be perfect. And if you approach an encounter from a framework of wanting to be a thoughtful, 
compassionate, understanding person, you will be successful. And, um, you know, there are, you know, specific things that you can do, and we can get into that in a little bit um, in terms of, you know, how do you introduce yourself, what kinds of words might you use. Um, but fundamentally, um, if you approach a patient, regardless of the setting or the context, regardless of whether they're an LGBTQ person or not, uh, with the desire to um, have that compassion and understanding for wherever they are, wherever they're coming from, you will find uh, that regardless if you trip over the words or not, that you will, I think, have a much more successful encounter. So what are some of the most common or damaging knowledge gaps that exist for providers when they're treating trans patients? Well, I, I think um, l- let's back up a second and it's important to get on the same page with respect to language. Um, and, and we throw out words like sex and gender and sexual orientation and gender identity um, a lot. And to many people, those are interchangeable, but they're not really. And so I, I think it's actually really important for everybody to understand kind of what these terms mean. Um, and, and so there is an important difference between sex and gender, Sex being the medically assigned identity at birth based on physical characteristics or chromosomes or hormones or genitalia, and words like male, female refer to sex. That is different than gender. You know, gender, gender identity, our inner sense of being a man or a woman or another gender, it's, it's often referred to as kind of how the, the mind and the heart regard the body, um, is a different concept than sex. Um, and so, um, you know, how I communicate my gender identity to the rest of the world is, uh, you know, re- typically referred to as gender expression. That's how I dress, how I cut my hair, the language uh, that I use. Um, and words that get at gender expression are things like feminine and masculine, whereas um, gender identity uh, would be things like uh, trans woman, trans man, uh, cisgender woman, cisgender man, th- those kinds of things. And, and obviously related to, but distinct from sexual orientation, which is, you know, who do you want to have enduring emotional romantic relationships with? So um, we increasingly um, have a recognition that there are lots of people living in the world um, whose gender identity um, is not necessarily aligned with their sex assigned at birth. Um, and that is what we would refer to as a, a transgender person. There also are non-binary people, people who kind of blur that distinction, uh, who, who don't identify um, as either um, being feminine or masculine or have a different perspective, um, and that uh, is often grouped in with um, transgender individuals, but they're a little bit different. Um, and so sometimes you'll see um, language like transgender and gender non-conforming used to refer to that group of individuals um, who are not uh, what you would think of as cisgender. Does, does that make sense from a language perspective? Absolutely. One of the things that I think really helped break that down for me is this, I'm a very visual person, and there's this thing called the gender-bred person. Sure, and yep. I'm assuming you know, I feel like it's a pretty popular thing, but it, it was brought up to me once, and it really helped me visually see what, those kind of differences were and see that there's gender identity, gender expression, biological sex, and what you're attracted to. And those are four completely different things. Exactly, exactly. And so, again, you know, those things will be different for almost every patient. And so understanding 
you know, how a patient identifies, who they are interested in having relationships with, who they are having relationships with, what they're doing in terms of sexual activity uh, are, are clinically relevant. And, and, and clinically relevant regardless of the specialty that you go in, whether it's primary care or specialty care, surgery or anesthesia, um, because understanding who your patient is allows you to take care of the whole patient. And, and I get asked the question all the time, you know, look, you're an anesthesiologist. What does this have to do with providing, you know, sedation and general anesthesia in the operating room? And I will tell you that the most important 15 minutes that I have with a patient every day are the 15 minutes that I spend talking to them before we go back into the operating room, understanding who they are, who they're with, who brought them into the hospital, who's going to take them home is critical in establishing rapport and understanding how we can make sure that this patient has the best possible health outcomes as they're going through this uh, particular experience. So what I'm kind of hearing from that, because that was definitely a question of mine, is how does your work as an anesthesiologist really allow you to work with this population? But so another question that I had was who's qualified to treat and manage transgender patients? And it kind of seems like you're saying that every physician, whatever, whatever field it is, has the capacity to work with transgender patients um, and should know how to work with them as well. You know, everyone does. And, you know, there's nothing particularly magical um, about taking care of a transgender person, uh, just like there's nothing magical about taking care of, um, you know, a, a gay mom um, or, you know, frankly, uh, any other underserved um, group. There there are some specific clinical considerations and there are advanced concepts like initiating hormone therapy or provision of gender confirmation surgery um, that do require some um, special expertise. Um, but look, Behind every, you know, transgender person is a human being, and, you know, there is no physician in the world who is not qualified to take care of a human being. I think that's really nice to hear because so many people aren't willing to even start the conversation about transgender patients because they feel, well, I'm not going into endocrinology or I'm not going into primary care, so I'm not going to be addressing those patients, but you never know who's going to walk into your door, and you should have a good concept of whole people, whether they're cisgender, transgender, what their gender identity, and um, all those other components are. You know, th- that's absolutely critical. And um, what you have to realize um, is that um, every day um, at my hospital, LGBTQ people walk into the door, walk into our clinics, and they're typically not coming in for LGBTQ-related health care. They're coming in for, you know, their runny nose, their flu shot, um, you know, routine care that, that happens every day. You know, somebody fell and broke their arm, and the fact that they are an LGBTQ or a transgender or gender nonconforming person um, is another layer to who they are, um, but fundamentally uh, they are a patient. Um, and understanding that, you know, they are a person who happens to be LGBTQ um, is really an important place to, to be starting from. You know, whether you specialize in care of LGBTQ people, which there are some practices that do, but many don't, you've got to realize that every day you will see 
people in the community. There was CDC data that came out um, two years ago. Almost 2% of high school kids in America today identify as transgender. Think about what that means when those kids grow up, go out in the community, and become um, your future patients. Um, you will continue to encounter more and more uh, folks who identify uh, in this way. That's a very large percentage of people, 2% out of our millions of people in the United States. It, it, it really is. In, in fact, um, that comes from the um, CDC uh, data from a population-based survey um, that was done, I think, across 10 states. Um, tremendous implications for public health practice as we think about how do we improve health outcomes for transgender youth, uh, as well as transgender patients in general. And unfortunately, uh, particularly amongst kids who are transgender, th there are tremendous health risks. 27% um, of kids in that particular survey felt unsafe going to school. 35% were bullied. 35% attempting suicide. And uh, unfortunately, um, that has profound implications when you think about the impact of um, adverse childhood events, um, early trauma, and all of the things that um, fall out downstream when, when those patients uh, and kids grow up. So they're having a lot more health, especially mental health issues, on top of the health problems that any normal person would face. And maybe normal is not the correct word there, but that anyone else would face. We know that the incidence of um, behavioral health challenges is higher amongst transgender kids as well as transgender adults. Um, we don't think that there's any biological basis for this. We think that this is solely a result of the discrimination, bias, and hatred that many of these individuals face going through their, their daily lives, being picked on, teased, cast aside. Uh, and unfortunately, that, that is a vicious cycle. You know, if, if you are made fun of in school, and you, you know, stop going and you drop out, you don't graduate, you don't get a job, it's kind of hard to get health insurance, access to care, have a stable place to live um, if suddenly, you know, you, you can't participate in society because you didn't have those kinds of opportunities. And, and that's the cycle that, that fortunately, you know, is starting to be addressed and, and there's, there's good work happening across the country. Um, I think there's recognition of um, it is not abnormal. There is nothing you know, foundationally, fundamentally, physically, or mentally wrong with being a transgender person. Um, but that's sort of a, a new idea, unfortunately, for, for many folks uh, across society. Yeah, well, thank you for, you know, stating that. So, obviously, I think it's something that as uh, as direct or as much as it seems to me as the way we should be thinking, I know that it's not Um I know I've seen people post different things on social media about how it's a mental illness to be transgender. But now that we know that, I mean, we've known for a while, but the WHO has come out saying that it is no longer a disorder of any sort. Uh, World Health Organization, American Medical Association, American Psychiatric Association, American Psychological Association, every credible medical organization in the world has unequivocally stated that being transgender is not a mental disorder. There is nothing wrong with having that identity. Now that we've established, you know, that anyone 
can take care of transgender patients, and they are definitely a group in need of care across the board. Would you say that, or could you say who exactly is qualified to treat and manage transgender patients while they're specifically transitioning? Sure. So there are um, guidelines and recommendations, uh, and in fact, they're free, uh, available to anybody online. Uh, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH, um, I think they're on their 11th or 12th version of these standards. They've been around for decades. They're a great resource and a great starting point for people to look through. Um, they make recommendations um, that are a little bit different for what they say for adults versus um, uh, youth. And so having a multidisciplinary team is really critical uh, for working with youth for lots of reasons to make sure that they receive the best care possible. Um, what I have discovered is that in our adult practices, um, primary care physicians are just as well equipped to take care of the basic needs of transgender patients as our endocrinologists or other um, specialists. And so we're seeing more and more um, routine hormone management, initiation of hormones uh, happening in, in primary care settings uh, than, than ever before. And I think that's because of a recognition of the need as well as the fact that you know, the medications that are often used, estrogens and testosterones, are the same medications that are in, you know, things like birth control, and most people are pretty comfortable prescribing uh, birth control uh, in a primary care setting. And so um, there's been a much more, um, I think, awareness, recognition, and availability of these services in, in, in routine primary care settings. Sticking on the point of adolescent transitioning, I know a lot of adults that have been practicing for a while are a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of adolescence transitioning because not knowing the impact that it might have on children, I think, is a common thing that I hear, at least. Um, can you speak a little bit to providers approaching this this group of people? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's critical for, um, for teenagers to have a uh, multidisciplinary, highly qualified team that is doing the assessment and working with the family um, that can understand um, if, in fact, uh, the child is insistent and persistent um, in their desire um, to identify in a way that's um, not aligned with their sex assigned at birth. Um, and, you know, there are very reasonable approaches in terms of um, how those kids are managed. Um, as you can imagine, a, a kid going through puberty and suddenly, um, you know, someone who was, was, was born female identifies as male and is now developing breast tissue, that can be a very, very disturbing, difficult, traumatic experience uh, for a child. And so one strategy um, after a multidisciplinary evaluation has occurred um, that's often employed uh, for those kids is to initiate hormone blockers. And, and these are agents that are, are very straightforward to use. They are totally reversible. They have very limited side effects. Um, and they basically allow um, the ability to delay puberty. Um, and often that happens so that um, children and their families can basically buy some time uh, to let the child um, make decisions when they are of age uh, as to what exactly they, they want to do. And, um, again, uh, that, that's a strategy that is well endorsed by um, the Endocrine Society, WPATH, and others uh, as an appropriate standard of care. Yeah. So 
I guess the big question for medical students that are listening in is how do you recommend that medical students become better versed in treating trans patients when it often isn't in a curriculum at all? Yeah, so I I think, um, you know, you will see transgender patients, um, but you may not recognize it if you don't ask questions about sex, gender, gender identity, and uh, sexual orientation. And so it starts with being comfortable with, um, I think, yourself and asking these kinds of questions of your patients and finding a way that you can ask these questions um, that is non-threatening, clinically relevant, and gets you the information that you need. And, and you will be surprised if, if you routinely ask patients um, about how they identify who they want to have relationships with, you will be surprised. And, um, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of times that I've asked these kinds of questions and patients have, have told me, geez, no one's ever asked me that before. You know, you're, you're the first person in a, in a healthcare context who I've ever, you know, come out to as a trans person. Um, and, and there are lots of reasons for that. So I, I think it starts with asking these questions, starting to understand how you can really get to know your patients. Um, and then you will, you will discover that there are, unique health issues, um, there are certain types of chronic diseases, cancers, mental health problems that transgender persons are at increased risk for, um, and uh, that information um, uh, continues to evolve as, as there's better research and better information, um, but certainly can be incorporated into, uh, into practice. And so my last question for you, because I don't want to take too much of your time. Sure. Um, uh, but I love everything that you're giving us. I think this, this is really a good basis for us to start off on. SOMA and AMSA, the student organizations that are the student branches of the AOA and the AMA, respectively, have passed resolutions recently asking for additions in curriculum on pronouns, asking that pronouns be used as part of standardized patient exams, in asking that medical schools start also including pronouns on name tags and such. Now, I have heard from students things that make it seem as if they're uncomfortable with the notion of using pronouns, of having their own pronoun on name tags and things like that. And so I'm curious if you think that it's a worthwhile venture, even though people are uncomfortable at times and is it is it excluding anyone by asking everyone to use their pronouns i think it's a very contentious topic in my opinion unfortunately but at the same time do you push people to use pronouns i guess when or ask people to use pronouns when they aren't necessarily willing to yeah i again i i i think that um Issues like that sometimes uh, are a double-edged sword, and, and and certainly, you know, you want to create an environment, whether that's in an education setting uh, or in a clinical setting, that is welcoming and inclusive to everybody. And so, um, you know, uh, proponents of, you know, using pronouns, uh, identif- you know, identifying your pronouns when you introduce yourself, putting your pronouns on your ID badge, putting your pronouns in your, your email signature, um, really, I think, come to this fr- from that sort of place, want- wanting to demonstrate that they are uh, welcoming, accepting, and, um, and and I think that's that, that can be helpful. What, what's challenging is that it can be um, sometimes difficult for someone who may use pronouns that you wouldn't expect 
um, to, to then do that. And so um, uh, I, I have heard mixed things from, from folks about the advisability of, of, of pushing for that, and I, I don't think there's necessarily uh, a right answer. Um, I think as our society evolves, that may you know, change over time in terms of, you know, what people do. What I will say is is probably more critical is is thinking, you know, what are the day-to-day things, you know, in our schools and in our practices that we can do um, to create a welcoming environment. And so it starts with not making assumptions. And so um, when you reach out and shake someone's hand and introduce yourself, um, instead of saying, you know, Mrs. Jones, uh, you know, asking, you know, how would you like me to refer to you today? Um, and is there a particular pronoun you would like me to use? I, I think in some ways can be a little bit more disarming than, you know, uh, sort of an outward display of, of, of your own pronouns, if that makes sense. Yeah, but it, I ask because something that I've heard both sides and I can see where people are coming from, and I yeah. definitely... Personal the other struggle. tip I would give you is if if you're just not sure what to do and for some reason you don't feel like you can ask, use plural pronouns. You know, they work for everybody. And it doesn't sound odd um, when I talk about, you know, someone to say, well, they went over to the store. You know, no one raises an eyebrow when you, when you hear someone make a, a comment like, you know, they came into the clinic um, as opposed to he came, she came, whatever. So, you, you know, you can use plural pronouns um, in everyday conversation, in your interactions with patients and people, um, frankly, without, I think, you know, raising any questions. And, and that can be a way um, to make people feel more comfortable if you're in a situation where you, you feel like you, for whatever reason, you know, can't, can't ask. So I do like to end the interview by asking if you have any tidbits of advice for medical students that are going through this really difficult process and how we can maybe make it a little bit better? Well, I I would say that um, it can be easy to lose sight of the person behind the diagnosis. And so I I always try to really understand who my patients are, where they are coming from, who is around them to support them, whether they're coming in because they need a flu shot or because they're going to have their hip replaced or have uh, colon cancer taken out, because that's the humanity that we really serve and really drives, I think, the the art of medicine. Um, and it's so important to uh, make sure that that's always in uh, at top of mind. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. I've really enjoyed this. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, and best of luck. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. I'm Chandler Davis. And this is PRN.